Hi, and welcome to a brand new episode of our Climate Breakdown podcast, your home for in-depth discussion and debate on the state of the climate. Climate Breakdown is offered to you by the Climate Expertise Center at the VU Amsterdam. My name is Mathieu Blondeel, I'm your host, and today we are once again recording in the studio of our very own campus radio. All right, so hi everyone. Uh, welcome to a brand new episode of our um, Climate Breakdown podcast. Uh, today we'll be talking about a really intriguing topic, and that is fossil fuel litigation or climate litigation, sometimes called as well. I'll keep it brief because I want my guests, of course, to explain the ID. But in essence, fossil fuel litigation is all about climate activists, but also ordinary citizens suing fossil fuel companies or other corporations or even governments as well, for their lack of action on climate change. I have two expert guests with me today to guide us through this fascinating topic. Our first guest here today is uh, Dr. Clemens Kaupa. He is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Law here at the VU Amsterdam. And amongst many other things, he teaches in the master's program International Business Law, Climate Change and Corporations. And Clemens is also a very highly valued uh, member of our Climate Expertise Center here at the VU as well. And perhaps most importantly, the reason why we invited him here today is because he's been actively involved in a rather interesting climate case in which he and his students submitted a, a formal complaint a couple of years ago to the Dutch Advertising Code Committee. Uh, about Shell's quote-unquote misleading advertising about selling supposed carbon-neutral uh, products. So uh, welcome, Clemens. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, and um, I'm also very honored to introduce um, as our uh, second guest, uh, Schalke van Oosterhout. Uh, Schalke works at Milieu Defensie uh, here in Amsterdam, which is the national chapter of Friends of the Earth uh, International. And Schalke is the lead researcher in Milieu Defensi's landmark case against Shell, of course, for their involvement in creating and exacerbating the ongoing climate crisis. Uh, welcome, Schalke. Thanks so much for having me. All right, great. Um, so after that, let's let's immediately delve into it. And, and I want to ask a first question to you, uh, Clemens. Um, basically, for our guests, what, what do we talk about when we talk about fossil fuel litigation? Fossil fuel litigation may be one form of uh, climate litigation and climate litigation could be in a broad sense any kind of litigation that touches on the climate. And the more common form of using it is uh, litigation that in some ways strategically employs the law to further climate action. Fossil fuel litigation would then be um, litigation specifically dealing with uh, the production uh, marketing of uh, fossil fuels and the producers. And um, this could be, for example, uh, lawsuits against uh, permits for new oil and gas drilling. It could be um, cases that seek damages for harm caused by fossil fuel industry. It could be greenwashing cases. One could also understand it as uh, litigation by the fossil industry itself. Fossil industry is a highly litigant industry. They uh, sue, for example, states when they uh, states uh, uh, do something that hurts the interests of the fossil industry, and uh, they also sue their uh, critics through uh, so-called slap lawsuits. 
All right, so it's a, it's a really broad topic, actually, and, and especially that latter point that you said about fossil fuel companies themselves suing uh, activists as well as, as governments is something that I definitely want to touch upon later on in, in our conversation. But, of course, um, uh, Schalke, you are also part of a very famous case against um, a fossil fuel company. Um, and maybe you can talk us through um, the case that you're, uh, well, part of at Milieu Defensi against Shell. So what is it about uh, this case that you've started? Yeah, so the case is basically about um, ensuring that Shell stops causing dangerous climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, we sued Shell already a couple of years ago um, for, for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, Shell was originally based in the Netherlands, so that helped. But Shell is also um, responsible for 2.5% of worldwide wide emissions. So it's really a big player. That's like nine times more than the Netherlands emits, for example. Uh, we also know that Shell has been actively lobbying against uh, climate policy, so it's really been an active player in sort of delaying climate action. Uh, so initially what this case is about is is really trying to uh, ensure that Shell cuts down its emissions. And what we asked for is a reduction of 45% in line with the Paris Agreement um, relative to, to 2019 by 2030. Uh, now we uh, won the court case in 2021. Um, and um, I think, yeah, that's, as you refer to, made it famous. It was a landmark decision. It never happened before that a court made the decision to uh, um, to order a company to cut down its emissions. Um, and um, yeah, unfortunately, Shell has appealed the decision. So that's what we're currently working on. And um, but yeah, very confident that we will win again as yeah. well. Yeah. All right, that's really interesting. Um, before indeed we, we continue about yeah. where we currently are uh, in, in, in the process, of course, I was wondering, because reading into the decision that was made in 2021, I believe it yeah. was, right, um, that you won the case, what were some of the arguments that you guys used, the legal arguments, and based on which arguments did you actually win this case? Because I understand um, that you have followed Dutch law or yeah. Dutch legal arguments, but also European legal arguments, right? Yeah. So basically, the court case is based on this uh, open norm, this duty of care that we have in the Netherlands, Article 662. And um, as you can also see when you read the verdict, and I would recommend everyone to read the verdict, it's only 45 pages. Yeah. I mean, us yeah. nerds, we can get behind yeah. that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you can see, I think it's about 14 different points that were used by the court to fill in this open open norm. And uh, indeed, it's it's international soft law like the UNGPs, but also the OECD guidelines. Um, It is um, international climate agreements like the Paris Agreement. So there's really a lot of different elements that were used to sort of fill in what this duty of care means. Mm -hmm. Um, And really highlighting that actually, um, corporate actors, companies like Shell also have an individual legal responsibility to um, stop causing dangerous climate change, which is really fascinating, right? Because up until now, it was maybe only thought that um, governments had that responsibility. Mm-hmm. So this court case um, and the way in which we use the law was really meant to also highlight that corporates have also an individual legal responsibility that is completely separate of what governments are doing and what mm-hmm. individuals are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Clemens, I was wondering, I mean, of course, you're a, you're a legal scholar, right? What, what do you find particularly interesting about this specific case as well of, of milieu defense against Shell? Is it about the argumentation? Is it about the fact that we're singling out a fossil fuel company uh, particularly? Or are there other issues that you think 
these are actually really fascinating to, to see as a researcher. Um, maybe to add to it, I think what's uh, really interesting is that there is a, the path of litigation is now shifting from targeting states for climate inaction, which was what, uh, for example, the Urenda case did and uh, many other cases um, since then followed. And the focus is now shifting on the fossil fuel industry. And this is, of course, um, interesting because even though fossil fuels are the main cause of or burning fossil fuels is the main cause of climate change. Uh, fossil fuels and the fossil industry have not really been addressed uh, by international, but also European and uh, national climate measures. And it's necessary to also bring the fossil industry and their activities into the focus. Because mm -hmm. if I understand it correctly, it wasn't just about scope one emissions um, or scope two emissions from these uh, fossil fuel companies. It's also about reducing scope three emissions, which, which is basically the emissions um, that occur from consuming the products that these fossil fuel companies are selling, right? Am exactly, I correct in that? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and the scope three emissions amount to like 95% of Shell's emissions. So, I mean, that's where the bulk of the emissions are. And um, that's also what the essence of this court case is about, obviously, like really cutting down these emissions in absolute sense. And if you think about it, um, I mean, it sounds a bit like, okay, you're cutting down um, emissions of consumers. How does that work? But as an organization, the easiest scope to cut down is actually your scope three emissions, because it's about you choose the products that you sell and you choose how much of these products you are selling. So uh, basically, it's about Shell selling less oil and gas. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, so you already said that you won the case in, in the first instance, but now Shell has appealed, of course. So now here we are, of course. And I've been reading a little bit up on, on where we stand or where you guys stand now uh, in this case. And what I found particularly interesting, and I'm not sure if this is a new argumentation, I, I saw that you guys sent a letter to Shell saying that there is now a risk for their board of directors for a and I have to read it here, personal liability risks. Yeah. Um, can you explain that a little bit? Because I thought it was about a company, but are we now talking about specifically suing the CEO, the CEO, the CFO or the whatever O that they have there in that company? We're suing everyone. No, just <laughs> kidding. Um, so basically it's two separate things. So um, we won the court case back in 2021. And um, we were thinking a company like Shell, um, you know, respectable company in certain ways would at least try to adhere to this verdict. And what we've seen happen in the months after is that they were basically doubling down on their fossil fuel course and not taking any steps to actually execute this verdict. So what we did is we started to investigate um, uh, also the legal avenues in terms of holding the directors of the company responsible for not executing the verdict because there is a court order since 2021 they were supposed to execute this verdict they're not doing that so if you as a director knowingly willingly ignore a court order what does that mean um so yeah of course we we delve into that issue and what we did is um we basically send a warning letter to the to the board of shell in which we highlight that if you do not execute this verdict there may be consequences for you personally as well um now we're not talking about uh the ceo ending up in prison but we are talking about um 
your uh, liability in the sense that um, ignoring a court verdict could potentially lead to us asking for uh, financial compensation. Mm-hmm. Now, if we would ask Shell for financial compensation for two and a half percent of the worldwide climate damage that they have caused, as they are responsible for two and a half percent of worldwide emissions, yep. that would amount to a sum of money that is so big that no company that's existing would yeah. ever be able yeah. to pay this. The law, as we currently interpret it, um, draws a, let's say, you could say artificial uh, dividing lines between what the corporations are doing, what the, yeah, their, uh, the leaders of these corporations are doing, what the responsibility of a shareholder is. And uh, I think in the future, it will be yeah, important to uh, not only look at what the undertaking as a legal construct is responsible for, but also what the responsibility of those is who actually make the decisions, like the managers, the directors, and ultimately also question what the responsibility of shareholders is. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. because really interestingly, um, I'm not sure if you've seen this as well, but Client Earth has, as a shareholder, taken action against the board of Shell, uh, which is also a really interesting development. They're basically also using the verdict of our court case to sort of say, like, um, the course that the board of Shell is taking is not the right one and is not future proof. And um, again, client Hearth as a shareholder is taking that position. And what is interesting is about that is that they're really saying that financially following this fossil fuel course is not the right trajectory for the company. So they're really saying that um, uh, the company should change course. And as a shareholder, they are holding the board responsible. So that's like even a different angle uh, and also a really fascinating one. And um, yeah, taking responsibility as a shareholder, I mean, maybe in this case, an activist shareholder, but still saying that uh, as a company, you should change your your course because it's not future proof. Yeah. It's also interesting to see a case yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's, it's fascinating that you say that it's part of a wider movement, I'd say, within climate activism that you see basically stakeholders, uh, environmental activists, buying shares of fossil fuel companies so that they can influence those companies from the inside. Uh, you're not talking about client earth, but I, yeah. I guess another famous example here in the Netherlands is also that of follow this, of yeah. course. Um, yeah, really great stuff. Uh, before we move on to uh, Clemens's work uh, with his students, uh, just wanted to ask again, so when will we get a final decision on this case? Yeah, or? <laughs> it's taking forever, right? Yeah, yeah we feel the same way. <laughs> so basically, we will have hearings again in April 2024. Okay. Uh, and uh, then a verdict, hopefully six months after. So okay. I mean, depends on how quick they decide. But uh, yeah, so at some point next year, we'll have a verdict. Okay, and final question then about that. Um, does it change anything that they've moved headquarters from The Hague to London in the past couple of years? Or do you think that doesn't play a role? So it doesn't play a role because the course, uh, the court case was initiated when they were still based in the Netherlands. So it's still the court in The Hague or the appeals court in The Hague that decides on this case. Okay. Yeah. All right, great. Uh, well, I would say keep us posted on yeah. whatever uh, is happening. And and I do want to talk a bit uh, about the other stuff that you guys are doing at, at Milieu Defense because I think there's interesting things going on there. Clemens, you, of course, um, have been actively involved in, in uh, another way of or another type of, of, uh, of uh, climate litigation that you were explaining uh, so eloquently uh, earlier. 
and that is together with your students, you brought a complaint about Shell's marketing claims to the Dutch, and I forgot the name, marketing board or advertising board. Can you talk a little bit about what you did there? Yeah. So um, I direct the, I co-direct the FU Climate and Sustainability Law Clinic, and this is where we work together with students on real-world cases. And in 2021, we submitted a complaint to the Dutch uh, Reclame Code Committee or Advertising Authority. And it, uh, the complaint dealt with the Shell advertising campaign Drive CO2 Neutral. Okay. Uh, the company claimed that the climate harm caused by driving with Shell fossil fuels could be neutralized with a payment of uh, one euro cent extra when you tank gasoline. And the way it was supposed to work is that they use the money to buy carbon offsets from forest uh, protection projects. Mm-hmm. And the problem with this is that um, forest-based carbon offsetting is and has always been a hugely controversial practice and Scientific research increasingly shows that it's simply uh, ineffective. So our complaint was uh, essentially uh, working out that the claim that uh, um, carbon offsetting could offset uh, emissions is factually incorrect because it presents two things which are not equivalent as equivalent. And um, we did that based on a thorough research of the existing uh, scientific literature. And the Reclame Code Committee said that uh, we were right. So Shell had to stop this, uh, 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 this campaign. What they in fact did is they just deleted a sentence from the website. So we complained again. We won again. Uh, they appealed, we won again. So <laughs> now Shell uh, stopped this uh, advertising campaign in the Netherlands. So it has to be added that uh, Shell is still doing the same things in other countries and also selling this product to other business clients. So despite better knowledge, they still continue their business practice. Maybe also interesting to add here is that Uh, Since that decision, there were uh, multiple other cases which were uh, going into the same direction, um, both in the Netherlands and and also in other countries, by advertising authorities, but also by courts. So now we know that uh, not only carbon neutral driving is impossible, we also know that uh, carbon neutral bananas don't exist, carbon neutral flying is impossible, carbon neutral milk, carbon neutral heating oil and carbon neutral cosmetics is all uh, misleading. Okay, I, the other day I was talking to a colleague who, who said um, that he wanted to buy olive oil and there was a specific brand of oil, uh, olive oil that was saying that they were selling uh, carbon neutral olive oil. So maybe that's something to look into as well. I've got uh, loads of questions actually, but uh, one question that strikes me is, or one thing that strikes me is, why single out their advertising? Um, I think there's a uh, two different uh, answers that can be given. On the one hand, uh, advertising plays an important role in the broader practices of the fossil industry and also of other polluting industries. 
the social scientists uh, talk about the social license to operate. So in order to do your business, to continue your business, you need to have support by the public, by the regulator, etc. And in order to maintain the social license to operate, the fossil fuel industry engages in lobbying and advertising. Sponsorship of cultural institutions, sponsorship uh, corporations with uh, public institutions like universities. And uh, advertising just plays uh, one uh, aspect of this, um, um, of this practice. And final question about that. Did they get a good grade, the students? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. And also for you guys at Milieu Defense, I don't know, but you should better start recruiting from, from that pool of students as oh, well. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have definitely some free recruits already. Uh, yeah, we're okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah. yeah, that's good to hear. Um, all right, let's build a little bit on, on what Clemens was saying about the, the argumentation and, and the reasons why he thinks this is so useful. He talked about the social license to operate of these fossil fuel companies, but also the, the right to sue. Um, Shoki, my question to you then becomes, it definitely seems like litigation is increasingly used as an essential element in the climate activists' uh, toolbox, right? Yeah. Um, and I was wondering, why why is that the case? Why, why litigation? I think it's definitely another tool for the toolbox, right? So it's not just the only way to go. But I think the answer to that lies in the governance gap, really, because... Um, Currently, when we are dealing with big polluters like fossil fuel companies, like oil majors, there is not really any way to regulate them. If you look at individual uh, governments, um, they are being influenced by these fossil fuel companies themselves. Fossil fuel companies are globally operating and they are lobbying to hold climate policy, delay climate policy, water climate policy down. Um, so we can't really leave it up to the governments to to regulate the, those companies. And uh, there is not really any international framework to hold those big polluters responsible. So then uh, the only option that we have is litigation. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, but again, it's not one of the tools that we have. We definitely also attack their social license to operate is a really important one. We try to highlight um, uh, the lobbying that they do, the watering down that they do. We try to put public pressure on these companies. Um, but um, I do really feel it's, a, it's an essential one. If you look at where we are, it's 2024. Um, we don't have that much time left. So we really need to use these like legal avenues um, to yeah some sort of force, some sort of change. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, Clemens, what do you think makes litigation such a powerful tool? So to bring a court uh, case, to bring something in front of a tribunal, to state your case, and ideally to also have uh, a judge or a jury to rule in your favor, that seems to be really meaningful to many. So something that I found fascinating to see is that even in the... Uh, activism-oriented part of the Dutch climate movement, so the ones that do direct actions, uh, occupy the coal harbor, etc. The decisions by the Dutch courts, Urgenda, Milieu Defensi, they have just such a important uh, meaning. It just seems to symbolize to them that what they're doing is not only politically necessary, but it's also the 
right thing to do. Yeah, maybe adding to that as well is that the courtroom is actually one of the few places where there's still space to have an actual debate on the basis of the latest available science. Because when you look at politics, I mean, yeah, uh, you know, it's like very fleeting and you have to make your point super quick. Otherwise, you will lose power. And also uh, companies like Shell are used to building these green smoke screens, right? So they're really used to misleading the public and you can't really mislead a court because it's based on reports is based on on facts so really having a discussion in the courtroom on these very substantial issues uh, is very valuable in and of itself and anything that the court says will have even more standing than an ipcc report for example so uh in that way it's it's also really really helpful, I think. Yeah, I mean, this so far is already a very fascinating conversation. And we've already talked about the power of litigation, but um, you've already hinted at it. Perhaps there are also flaws to this approach, right? And Clemens, uh, could you perhaps elaborate a little bit on what you think might be the flaws of uh, a legal approach to climate action? So I think one major limitation of Climate litigation has to do with money. Litigation is just very expensive, especially if your opponent is a highly profitable fossil fuel company. So money does pay for legal expertise. It pays for other forms of expertise and it allows uh, um, companies to just go on and on, appeal everything, um, take up any challenge. And this is, of course, not true for NGOs, for the civil society. They have to choose um, very precisely where to spend their limited resources. Um, So there is no, uh, to some extent, there is uh, an, an equal playing field because you have equality of argumentation you can make a better case but in other ways there is no equal playing field just because uh, fossil fuel companies have so much more energy through their financial means that would be one thing another thing is that uh, litigation can obviously take many years and the outcomes don't have to be positive I think like a third point to to add is that um, climate litigation is currently like viewed as uh, as something very attractive precisely because of this uh, uh, deficiency in governance uh, from legislators, which are blocked by vested interests through lobbying, etc. But the problem is, of course, that the fossil industry itself can and frequently does use litigation in order to uh, push against regulation that uh, they oppose, in order to shut down critics. So it's really a two-sided sword. But uh, giving uh, courts this uh, unlimited power to, let's say, make uh, far-reaching policy decisions, there's also uh, a problem connected to it. So I would say ultimately uh, litigation is an important, as you were saying, an important piece of the overall puzzle, but it really does not uh, replace the need for sustained political pressure for change. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, really fascinating arguments, of course, here. Um, Shokyo, I'm, I'm assuming that you can attest to the fact that it takes a lot of time and a lot of money to Absolutely. sue a company like yeah. Shell. Yeah, we've actually written a menu, a manual, sorry about this. Um, it's called How to Beat a Company Like Shell, for anyone that's interested and also wants to sue a, a company like Shell, <laughs> okay. uh, on how to overcome some of these hurdles. Uh, but... I mean, yeah, the time one is, is a difficult one to overcome. In the Netherlands, yeah. we have quite an efficient legal system, I would say. And even here, it takes yeah. many, many years. And unfortunately, time is not on our side when it comes to fighting dangerous climate change. So uh, mm. therefore, I don't think it's it's a great strategy to sue as many companies as possible. We have to be very specific and we have mm. to think very strategically about our next moves um, and hit where it hurts most. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, another really fascinating point that, that Clemens made is about, you know, in the end, these are political decisions, right? It's it's political. It's it's um, you have to vote a government into power that will implement uh, climate policies, uh, transition policies, etc. So is this then a fight that we should take to the courts? Shouldn't this be a political fight, if you will, rather than a legal fight? I think it's what I highlighted before. We have this governance gap, unfortunately. So even if uh, the Dutch government all of a sudden does what it takes to become aligned with 1.5 degrees, which is we're still very far away from that. But even then, the Dutch uh, government would not be um, succeeding by itself. And even the Dutch government cannot regulate a multinational company like Shell because it's operating worldwide. So... Yeah, I mean, of course, we need action on the international level. Uh, are we going to get that uh, quickly enough? I have, you know, question marks would, of course, be great. We have to work on that in parallel to litigation. But I feel in the current political system, that's not something that we can count on. As history has shown us, we're still very far away from what is needed. So uh, for now, I think... As we said before, litigation is a is really a necessary tool to push for the change that is needed within the very limited time frame that we have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, great points. Um, and another question that I had, uh, perhaps uh, Clemens, uh, you can answer that. Because it takes significant resources, financial, human resources as well, uh, it takes a lot of time as well. These are very complex cases. Is climate or fossil fuel litigation something that we see more happening in the global north? in advanced industrialized economies rather than the global south developing economies where those resources are far more limited for environmental or climate NGOs? And do you think if that would be the case, that is a problem? I'm not sure if I have like a very useful answer to this, Um, but I think that uh, there are also examples from uh, countries of the global south where carbon majors have been successfully uh, targeted through uh, legal proceedings, maybe not litigation in a narrow sense. What I'm referring to is uh, the Philippines uh, carbon major uh, inquiry. So there was a year-long um, process uh, before the Human Rights Commission of the Philippines, and it investigated in the aftermath of a tropical storm that really killed many people in the Philippines. Uh, it investigated what the responsibility of the fossil fuel industry is in worsening these uh, weather extremes. And uh, there the outcome was that uh, after hearings uh, in uh, different continents with uh, many actors, the uh, Philippines Human Rights Commission found that uh, 
the carbon majors have a responsibility to protect human rights, which would, for example, also include a moratorium on new fossil fuel development and uh, yeah, stop selling uh, oil and gas, stop greenwashing. Okay. All right. Fascinating. Do you see that? I mean, of course, you're part of uh, Friends of the Earth, right? Do you see your mother organization working in the Global South on these types of cases as well or not really? Uh, of course, yeah. I think worldwide we see over 2000 climate change litigation cases, but the majority of them are in the Global North. And I think that's absolutely right. I feel like we as the Global North should also take the lead in, in these sorts of cases. It's often companies based in the Global North that do a lot of damage in the Global South. So I also really do see that it's our responsibility to take on these sorts of cases, not just uh, because of uh, financial resources, but also because of this historic responsibility um, that we have. But also often our legal systems are more equipped to deal with these sorts of cases as well. And also the activists in these countries are often facing very different risks than we are facing uh, over here in the Netherlands. So I also feel that here in the Netherlands, we have a responsibility to take on the more risky cases um, against those those big polluters than uh, in the global south. So absolutely great that we are seeing some developments there, but I do feel that it's our responsibility in, in global north countries mm -hmm. to to deal with the, the most dangerous polluters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, great. Um, Clemens, another point that you touched on earlier a couple of times already is, is the fact that this is, of course, a double-edged sword. It's not just uh, environmental NGOs or students taking on big corporations. It's also the other way around, fossil fuel corporations suing climate activists. I think a very recent example is Shell suing Greenpeace for a couple of million in damages for them entering uh, one of their vessels a couple of months ago in, in 2023. Um, there's also closer to home, of course, RWE and Uniper that sued the Dutch government famously for closing down uh, coal-fired power stations. I don't think these are at, up in the air anymore or going through anymore. But in any case, do you think that That is a risk as well, fossil fuel companies suing governments, uh, activists, citizens as well, trying to, you know, call for climate action. Yeah, I think you um, already mentioned uh, some really important examples of this. So we could say the two major areas where um, the use of the uh, legal system by the fossil fuel industry is particularly vicious is on the one hand the mobilization of a legal area that is called international investment law by uh, large companies and this area of law uh, essentially allows companies to bring governments before a private arbitration body that typically works without transparency and without uh, oversight and uh, without an appeal possibility that issues uh, rulings for damages which can go into the billions and this is already um, this exercises already a huge what's called regulatory chill when it comes to uh, governments of Uh, the global north, because it can just be so costly to uh, go through with the energy transition. But 
when the same risk is then uh, when when uh, countries of the global south face the same risk, this can really be um, uh, a major impediment to the necessary change. And maybe just to to add on to this, I think there is uh, something to really watch out for is a uh, more general development of a crackdown against dissent, against the uh, freedom of expression uh, by the climate movement, as well as by other social movements. And this is, uh, uh, to some extent, depending on a jurisdiction, driven by the fossil industry, but it's also driven by states. So yeah. there is uh, now quite uh, shocking judgments against climate activists in different countries. And uh, yeah, I would say protecting the right to take the street and to express uh, and to yeah also to engage in direct action. I think this is so crucial for the climate movement and for social movements generally. And it's necessary to really watch out and uh, make sure that these rights are not limited. Mm -hmm. That actually brings me to a question that was coming to mind as I heard you talk and I was as I was doing a little bit of research uh, into uh, your own research and your teaching. What would you say to critics, uh, perhaps peers, other academics who say it's not the role of an academic to actually bring complaints to uh, a marketing board or an advertising board or whatever, because it risks impacting your position as a neutral researcher, if you will. So maybe uh, I can start uh, from uh, from a position of my specific discipline. I think that uh, in the specifically in the legal discipline and legal faculties, it is uh, quite common that teachers, professors are also engaged in uh, let's say other legal processes, for example, as uh, uh, experts in uh, in court cases, it could be uh, having a seat in uh, some uh, government commission. Uh, it could be as a, as a replacement judge. So there's uh, many ways how uh, legal academics are engaging, let's say, outside of their own. Uh, of the of the university, um, maybe the next step would be to say that legal academics are also uh, typically engaged in, you could say, uh, broader uh, social discussions. So, for example, just uh, when I think of colleagues from my own faculty, people who uh, work on subjects like uh, slavery and uh, reparations. Uh, colleagues who work on uh, privacy and uh, government uh, essentially invading uh, privacy of its citizens. And uh, these colleagues uh, engage and should engage in uh, public discussions. And uh, you could say that um, bringing a complaint or bringing a lawsuit would uh, in some ways be the next uh, step. And uh, in some ways you could say the um, uh, the proof that this is uh, a necessary thing to do, you can see uh, in in the consequences. So not yeah. only uh, did the Reclame Code Committee decide that our arguments were correct, but also uh, multiple other courts agreed and ultimately the European Parliament and the European legislators agreed. Yeah. 
Okay, well, that's a, that's a really great answer. I think that as academics, we have a role to play in societal debates, especially also if I can add to that, uh, because we're paid with public money as well. Um, that, of course, um, is important to always keep in mind as well. Um, I, I think that we're nearing a little bit the end of, of our conversation here today, but um, I want to ask the two of you, because we already touched on a couple of examples of, of other legal cases outside of, of the stuff that, that the both of you are doing. Do you think that there are some remarkable cases or is there a remarkable case that you just want to mention here that you think is something that we should look out for, that we should pay particular attention to uh, because they're really big cases or really interesting. They have a, a, an original take or, or whatnot. Uh, Shaukia? Uh, well, of course, we're working on some new court cases of our own. Uh, so yes. definitely uh, keep Moyo Defense's website. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, some, some interesting stuff happening there. And then I think um, the case I mentioned before, the Client Earth case against the board of Shell is an interesting one. Yeah. As a shareholder taking action against your board, so very yeah. novel. Um, another case that's interesting is the case uh, that Greenpeace Italy is starting against any. Okay. Um, in which they um, built on our court case, so they ask for a reduction of 45%, but they also want compensation for historic emissions. So they also okay. want, uh, so they're really combining the two approaches, which is, an, is a novel one. And I think they're doing the same in the whole CHIM case. Okay. So combining both uh, looking at the past and, and looking at the future yeah. is an interesting one as well. Uh, what happens in California the other day was also really interesting, where the, the state of California basically asked. Um, almost all ma oil majors um, for damages and then putting the damages into a climate fund to prepare the state for uh, basically adapting to climate change was also a really okay. novel way. I mean, th there's so much happening in the field of climate yeah. litigation. I feel we could make a new episode every week. <laughs> yeah. But these are just uh, a few that come to the top of my head. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fascinating. Um, Clemens, do you have any fascinating cases to share with us? So maybe just to add, um, the Californian case that you were mentioning, that is, uh, of course, part of a really significant development uh, currently taking place uh, in the United States, which is actually based on um, uh, the on consumer law and uh, fossil fuel misinformation. So the structure of these cases is similar to the lit successful litigation against the tobacco companies some decades ago. And the argument is that the... Uh, fossil fuel companies were deceiving the public about the harm uh, caused by their products and therefore they are uh, to be held responsible for the um, yeah for essentially the adaptation costs that uh, states like California but also uh, coastal cities like New York City or Honolulu incur. So fossil fuel disinformation that be and the tobacco parallel that is something that I find particularly interesting and maybe just to add uh, uh, I think also a really significant development to watch out for are uh, human rights cases which are currently before the European Court of Human Rights so there is uh, uh, a number of uh, uh, procedures currently ongoing. Uh, one of them would be Klima Seniorinen, a Swiss case. Another one would be Duarte Agostino, where uh, young Portuguese uh, people were suing 33 states, arguing that uh, climate inaction is harming their human rights. All right. Great, great examples. Uh, thank you, uh, the both of you. I want to close off with uh, the same question 
for the both of you. And that is given the fact that both of you are for years have been embedded in climate uh, research, climate teaching, climate action as well. Are you an optimist or a pessimist about the climate future? You go for a shock, yeah. I think giving up is, is not an option. Uh, often people ask me, oh, can we still you know, keep a global warming below 1.5 degrees? Um, people are already suffering the consequences of climate change worldwide, right? So even if 1.5 is no longer possible, then we should aim for 1.5001. And yeah. then if that's no longer possible, then then the next up. So it's it's not the, this jump from 1.5 to 2 degrees or, or above. Um, every little fraction of uh, limiting climate change matters. So as long as there is a possibility to limit that, then we have to stay optimistic about that. All right, Clemens? I have the feeling that if you think back, either historically or if you think about uh, what uh, many people around the world are currently going through, people have faced and are facing existential threats all the time. If it's uh, existential threats to their personal life or to their community or to their way of life. So... Um, Maybe what we're facing now would be an existential threat on a more global level, but it is something that uh, humans have always and will presumably also have to deal with in the future. So I think we need to just uh, engage with this in this risk. And it would probably be both optimistic and pessimistic because pessimistic, that side is uh, that bad things will probably happen in the future and optimistic is that there are really so many people who uh, care about change, who are active for change and um, who I think uh, can bring about change. All right, that was a beautiful answer. Thank you both. Thank you, Clemens Kauper. Thank you, Schauke von Oosterhout for being with us and thank you for listening. Well, that was it for today. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Before I leave you, I want to thank my guests for joining us. I also want to thank Nela of the Climate Expertise Center for helping us realize this show, um, the VU Campus Radio for hosting us, and Floris and his team over at Podcastil for producing it. But most of all, I want to thank you for joining us and listening. Definitely check out our other Climate Breakdown episodes as well. And if you want to learn more about our work, visit the website of our Climate Expertise Center or get in touch directly. Thanks and catch you later.